Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indonesia, a country made up of 18,000 islands and islets that are collectively home to 277 million people, making it the fourth most populous country in the world, behind only India, China, and the USA. If nothing else, this sheer manpower has made Indonesia a considerable economic player, with an economy only slightly smaller than Australia on a nominal basis, which easily makes it one of the most influential economies in the region, a region that itself has become highly influential. Indonesia is a rapidly growing market that is broadly halfway between India and China in economic development, with a few major advantages over both. The general global shift away from China as a centre of low-cost manufacturing is presenting a once-in-a-generation opportunity to Indonesia, which has an even lower-cost labour force, easy access to the world's oceans for trade because it's surrounded by the world's busiest shipping lanes, and it still has enough scale to comprehensively substitute the major industries that China has historically monopolised. The country's immense population is also bucking global trends. While the Asian economic powers of the last century are now struggling with ageing and declining populations, Indonesia's population is still very young, and it's growing, which means it will have a robust workforce for at least the next half century. On top of all of this, Indonesia has immense natural resource reserves of oil and natural gas, precious and semi-precious metals, minerals and some of the most arable farmland in the world. The country is capitalising on these advantages, and today it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But it is still very poor by global standards, and as we've seen countless times on this channel before with dozens of other countries, natural resource wealth doesn't mean much if it's not managed well. And if it's managed poorly, it can often be worse than having nothing in the first place. The country has immense potential, but realising that and successfully improving the living standards of 5% of the world's population is going to require overcoming some equally large challenges. Indonesia might be able to theoretically outcompete China in key industries, but that won't do it any good if it in turn gets outcompeted by even cheaper manufacturing centres in the region like Vietnam and the Philippines. Indonesia also has significant demographic, geographic and political problems, which could all quickly change its trajectory from one of the fastest growing economies in the world to yet another early 2020s economic failure. So, does Indonesia have effective enough economic management to make it into the global middle class? Could the country become a viable alternative to China for major global industries? And finally, would the current superpowers in the region even let this happen? Once we've done all of that, we can as always put Indonesia on the Economics Explained a National Leaderboard. From the start, it's easy to see why economists are so excited about the potential for Indonesia to become a productive powerhouse that could not only improve the lives of its people, but also improve living standards for the average global citizen. The growth of China is often viewed in the context of what it did for the Chinese people, which was obviously fantastic, bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but it provided the global economy with cost-effective manufacturing on a lot of the goods and services that we now just take for granted. Most people in advanced economies don't need to think too hard about buying basic household goods like kitchenware, basic furniture, or even an average television where 50 years ago they were all major purchases. 
The contents of most people's homes back then were worth more than the homes themselves. And yeah, sure, houses back then were a lot cheaper than they are today, but it still shows how much we are able to consume thanks to the increased industrial capacity of the planet. And countries like China specifically have been the largest contributors to that additional output. So, a country like Indonesia that has two of the three factors of production ready to go is something that everybody should be excited about. But land and labour are not enough by themselves in the modern global economy. The country's large workforce and abundant well-positioned lands have always been there, and still, for most of its history, it wasn't a particularly wealthy country in its own right, especially not on a per capita basis. It had always, in one way or another, been missing that third variable, capital. The economy of Indonesia, as it exists today, really got started after the end of the Second World War. During the war, the country was invaded by the Japanese that wanted their rich deposits of coal and oil. The occupation was so severe that the average height of the Indonesian population fell a measurable amount due to lack of nutrition. Following the war, conditions didn't get much better. Indonesia, a previously Dutch colony making up the Dutch East Indies, followed the lead of many previous colonies at the end of the war and started pursuing independence. This was not a peaceful transition, and fighting broke out across the country between Dutch forces and pro-Dutch Indonesian civilians and the revolutionaries. This carried on for four and a half years, further pushing the already downtrodden country into poverty. After their independence was recognised, conditions did improve, but only barely. The country lacked the infrastructure or even the government systems to be anything other than a colony exploited for its farmlands and natural resources. Building a government from scratch is a very difficult undertaking, before even considering the challenges that came from almost a decade of conflict. The new leaders of the country basically needed to figure out everything from local government services to geopolitical alliances. Something that even well-established governments with centuries of experience and establishment get wrong. What's more is that the skills of a revolutionary leader rarely translate into the mundane maintenance of a stable and confidence-inspiring economy. The original government was almost destined to fail, and in the mid-1960s amid widespread hunger, severe poverty and a 1000% inflation rate, it did. It was replaced by a new regime that immediately set out to bring the country back under control by focusing on economic policy that would restructure foreign debt, make the currency usable again, and attract foreign aid to help the struggling citizens of the nation. Only after that were they going to be able to focus on grander ambitions of starting to grow the economy. The goal at this time was simply to reduce the suffering of their people. Part of these efforts involved a group of economists that went on to be known as the Berkeley Mafia. These were university researchers that fled the country during the conflict for independence and ended up studying at the University of California before they returned to Indonesia. The group was given a lot of authority to enact policies to get the country's economy back on track, and for the most part they were pretty successful. Between 1970 and 1980, economic output grew by over 540%, thanks largely to being able to set up the infrastructure it needed to start exploiting its oil at scale. Now, fossil fuels in particular are by no means a guarantee of economic success. That's because, while they can introduce a lot of money into an economy for a simple export, it's difficult to get that money to circulate in the economy to achieve positive economic outcomes. Oil facilities require very little manpower to operate, so they don't contribute much to employment. And it's also very easy for foreign companies to take a majority of the profits for these operations back offshore. It also increases the value of the local currency and foreign exchange markets because most oil sales are handled in US dollars and then local oil companies will use those US dollars to buy their own currency. This artificially makes other exports less competitive, which means quickly the only viable industry will become the resource business. This is what is known as Dutch disease or the resource curse, and it's something we've seen before in dozens of economies we've explored on this channel. The Dutch really did do Indonesia dirty. The only thing that consistently makes the difference between the countries that truly benefit from their natural resources like Norway, the USA and to a lesser extent Australia and Canada 
and the countries that end up like Venezuela, is the effectiveness of their government to use those resources to benefit the people of their nation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Given that Indonesia was on its second government in as many decades after fighting a war for independence, it would be reasonable to expect that they were more likely to end up in the second group. But all things considered, they did quite well. Economic growth was still heavily tied to natural resource prices, but the government used these revenues to invest into infrastructure to build out other industries. Having natural resources also meant that despite its relative instability at the time, the government could borrow money at low-ish interest rates because the loans were secured by a reliable source of foreign income. The country was building seaports and airports and roads and power plants and everything it needed to build out modern industries to get its people out of farms and into factories and offices where they could produce high levels of output and make themselves and the country a more prosperous place. Of course, it would be great if the story ended there, but it didn't. If the country kept growing like it did in the 1970s, it would be as wealthy as regional peers like Australia and Singapore. Today it's wealthier than it ever has been, but still well below the global average because the country still has some major challenges to overcome. The new government may have been more effective than the one it replaced, but it was still highly corrupt in ways that limited proper industrial development, because something as simple as settling contract disputes was often won by whoever was the best connected or paid the biggest bribe. The population was also large, but not particularly well educated. Even today, only around 10% of Indonesia speaks English, which is the de facto international language of business. The government over its history has made investments into education, but it still lags behind even regional rivals like India, and this will need to improve if it wants to become a properly advanced economy, which again, it has the ability to do, as long as it can seriously address its major weaknesses. Upon closer investigation, its land is both a blessing and a curse. Yes, it's close to international trade routes, it's in a relatively safe corner of the globe, and yes, it's rich in natural resources, but it's also made up of thousands of islands rather than being one single landmass. This makes developing labour and capital infrastructure much harder than it would be in a country that's a single blob of land. Major industrial powers need to be able to move stuff around, and while the ocean is the most efficient means of transportation, it becomes less efficient when goods need to be loaded and unloaded where in a country like China or the USA, they can just be moved on a single train line. The country has also had to make tough decisions about where investments are made. If the country concentrates a lot of infrastructure on its major islands like Sumatra, Java and Borneo, it would make everything more efficient, but it would come at the cost of starving other islands of industry and create regional disparities that would be very unpopular. Spreading out infrastructure solves this issue, but it makes everything cost more and it doesn't work together quite as well. Something like giving the country's 277 million people access to the internet is a significant challenge when cables have to crisscross back and forth across thousands of islands. 
Australia, which is the closest economy in size in the region, is connected to the internet via just 12 undersea cables. And Australia's geography is not exactly fantastic either, being large and very spread out with small concentrations of population centres all over the massive island. Indonesia has 217 cables just to connect the country to itself, and even then a lot of its islands depend on slower phone line connections or have no connection to the internet at all, which means that they simply just can't be globally competitive in today's world. The challenge extends to everything the country does, not just the internet. The current growth the country has been experiencing in recent years has been fuelled by a series of ambitious projects largely funded by fossil fuel and agricultural exports. It's fantastic that the country is reinvesting this money where a lot of governments would have just squandered it, but it's still going to take a lot to simply get it on an even footing with global rivals. The country's geography is presenting other challenges as well. Indonesia has recently announced plans to entirely relocate its capital city from Jakarta on the island of Java to Nusantara on the island of Borneo. If everything goes according to plan, the new city will open almost exactly a year from when this video is posted. This will be a city built from the ground up, which is not entirely unheard of for national capitals, but the reasons in this case are… Jakarta has become overpopulated, congested and polluted. The city's air quality has recently been worse than the notoriously polluted cities like Beijing, Delhi and Manila, effectively making it the most polluted city in the world. On top of all of this, Jakarta is prone to earthquakes and it's sinking due to groundwater being pumped out to provide for the needs of the city's 10.5 million residents. The decision to move the capital is one that has been considered by successive governments almost since the country claimed independence. The decision to just go ahead and do it was made by the newly elected government that was built on a reputation of making big decisive changes. In addition to changing the capital city, the government under a charismatic new president has greenlit a series of major new projects at a rate that hasn't been seen in the country since the rapid growth period in the 1970s. Some of these are necessary, but some may be major missteps that end up costing the Indonesian economy and its people in the long run. Governments in advanced economies tend to move very slowly because good economic decisions normally only marginally improve living standards for regular people, where bad economic decisions can set entire countries back decades. Indonesia still has a lot of growing to do, and it has a lot of major advantages which could secure it as one of the largest economies in the world. But its inherent weaknesses could quickly catch up to it, making it just another story of a rapidly advancing economy that couldn't properly make the transition from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy to an advanced service economy. Okay, now it's time to put Indonesia on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. Starting as always with size, Indonesia has a GDP of 1.2 trillion US dollars, making it the 16th largest economy in the world, just behind Spain and just ahead of Saudi Arabia. Indonesia gets an 8 out of 10. That output is produced by the world's fourth largest population, so even though its raw economic output is substantial, it's spread out a lot. For scale, its economy is still a fair bit smaller than Australia, which has a GDP of 1.6 trillion US dollars, but a population one-tenth the size, at only 26 million. With a GDP per capita of $4,332, around a third of the global average, Indonesia gets a 3 out of 10. Stability and confidence is improving, but it's still not great. It has a relatively modest debt to GDP ratio of just 41%, which is up since the beginning of the decade thanks to spending on big infrastructure projects that we explored in this video, but down since the beginning of the new century. Corruption remains a problem and it can't be ignored that the local population is still highly vulnerable to economic shocks. But with all of that considered, it gets a 5 out of 10. Growth has been very strong. Since the year 2000, the economy is more than 6 times as large as it was 23 years ago. It's also doubled in size in the last decade, and most economic projections agree that it will be the third or fourth most powerful economy in the world by 2050, 
potentially beating out even the USA. Nobody can really predict the future, least of all economists, but for now it earns a 10 out of 10. Finally, industry. Indonesia has strong manufacturing, tourists and natural resource sectors, but none of them are world leading in their own rights. The geographic composition of the country has made many industries far less competitive than they would be in a typical country, but even still, given its raw size, it can't get anything less than a 7 out of 10. Altogether, that gives Indonesia an average score of 6.6 out of 10, putting it in a very respectable position on the Economics Explained and National Leaderboard. We have put together an entire part 2 to this video that covers one of Indonesia's biggest weaknesses, its banking industry. The video is available now exclusively for channel Patreon members, so if you want to help the team out and get access to that video, we'll leave a link to that in the description below. Thanks for watching mate, bye. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.